Well, I've mentioned to you the, the so-called butterfly effect, the last conference. The idea that even minute changes and circumstances can yield very different results. And uh, if that is true in the physical order, that is in the order of this world, material world, it is definitely true in the spiritual world, in the spiritual order. Now we uh, have something similar to that in the old saying about the, the loss of the nail. You recall the, uh, the saying, for want of a nail, the horseshoe was lost, and for want of the horseshoe, the horse was lost. For want of the horse, the rider was lost. And for want of the rider, the battle was lost. For want, for loss of the battle, the kingdom was lost. And it all traced back to something that seemed very insignificant. It's the loss of a single nail holding a horseshoe onto a horse's hoof. So basically the same idea is expressed by that old saying there that has come back to us now as a, as a theory. And unfortunately, uh, when it comes to our own way of thinking, things that we can't explain, things that we can't account for, things we can't predict, are the result of chaos and mere randomness. But we know that because the world is created by an infinite, infinitely powerful intelligence, infinitely powerful will, we know that there is no such thing as actual chaos, okay? In fact, if one were to speak of chaos, the only actual place where there is any chaos or anything that would qualify as chaos in all of creation, it is in the human soul because the human soul is capable of inverting and subverting and perverting the order, <clears throat> the order of things. And that's what we did when we sinned. <clears throat> it's the very nature of sin, that it is a disorder in the human soul. And what is it that is disordered? <clears throat> what is disordered is what we love. That we choose to set up an idol in our souls by loving something lesser and rejecting the love of something greater. That is a disorder. Now, love really is to be drawn to goodness. And the greater the goodness is, the more, by rights, we should love that. The greatest of all goods, of course, is God himself, who is infinite goodness. And so, when our Lord gives us the first great commandment, that we should love the Lord thy God with our whole heart and mind and soul and strength, he's just saying that we should love according to the measure of goodness, and God's goodness is beyond all measure. And we should love him not only most of all, but he has the claim to all of our love. And whatever else we love, we should love because of him, because the goodness in the creature is created by God to reflect his goodness. So we can't really say that we love anyone or anything, genuinely and truly, unless we love it because it reflects the goodness of God. When we depart from that and we start loving things 
for themselves and loving them in preference to God, who is infinite goodness, then we have what we call a disorder of sin in us. So the only real chaos, the only real disorder in all of this creation is right in the human soul. It's right here. It's right here in each one of us. But God brings order out of chaos. God has the power to restore that order. By grace, he does. And so we look to him and we plead with him to restore the order that should be there. Now this has to do with the virtues that I was speaking of earlier, and I did want to talk about that a bit, the question of the virtues that enable us to produce the good fruits, to be productive of good in the world today. There are some things that I wanted to mention to you uh, on the way as we, as we head toward that uh, brief consideration all too brief. I talked about the virtues of prudence and justice and fortitude and temperance. Well, books have been written. In fact, libraries of books have been written about these things, prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. So we can only recover them very briefly here. But a couple of practical things I wanted to mention to you on the way uh, toward the discussion of these things. And one of them has to do with uh, something that came up the other day, just recently, in a discussion I was having with a fine gentleman. And the question came up, how is it that we can offer to God the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ, when they're not our sufferings, they're Jesus' sufferings. They're our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God's sufferings for us, how can we offer this? Martin Luther was asking the same question, actually. It came up with the wrong answer. Catholics come up with the right answers. They ask the good questions, but they come up with the good answers. <clears throat> Heretics, not so much. They may ask the right questions, but they do not give the right answers. How is it, Luther said, that we can offer to God the Father the sacrifice of his Son if the Mass is truly a sacrifice, that's what we're pretending to do. But these are not our sufferings. And even if they were, they couldn't redeem us. Only the Son of God dying on the cross could redeem us. And so we cannot consider, he said, the Mass a sacrifice. As though we're offering to God something of real value. As though we're offering the sacrifice of Calvary to the Father in Heaven. So he denied the whole idea of the Mass as being the sacrifice of Calvary. And that is why the liturgies, and the ceremonies, the worship that came from Luther is not a matter of offering God anything sacrificial. It's a matter of getting together, singing hymns, and uh, praising God, but offering nothing to God in terms of reparation. Because he didn't think we could. So the Novus Ordo, the same thing. The Novus Ordo has followed the Lutheran idea of redemption. And not only in principle, but in practice. In fact, Francis has said that now they all agree, including uh, Francis himself and all of his followers, they all agree with the Lutheran concept of redemption. They formally accepted the Lutheran heresy. 
But you and I know that the Mass is a sacrifice, that our Lord becomes present there in a very powerful way, and all the more powerful because of its simplicity. And he does for us on the altar what he did for us on the cross. No, he doesn't suffer, he doesn't die on the altar. But he does plead for us for mercy. He pleads to God the Father in heaven for us for mercy. At the same time from the altar, he is pleading to God the Father for mercy for you and me. He's also pleading to you and me. He's pleading to me as I stand at the altar. He's pleading to you as you kneel in the pew. God the Son incarnate on the altar is pleading to you to come and accept the mercy of God. He's pleading to you to come to him. Come to me, all you who labor and are burdened, and I will refresh you. So he's pleading to you to come to him. Just as he continually pleads throughout your life. He completes when you commit sin, when we commit a mortal sin. He's pleading with us, pleading with us, come to me, I will forgive you. How much our Lord wants us to come and seek his forgiveness because he wants so much to forgive. He died to forgive. The problem is not that he doesn't want to forgive. The problem is that we are not always that willing to be forgiven. That we don't necessarily want his forgiveness. And it tells you something about our Lord's love for us, that he's willing to plead with us. He's willing to plead with us to accept his love, to accept his love for us and to respond by loving him in return. Well, we see this relationship between our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and his Father. That's unique. He's the only begotten Son of God. You and I have been taught by this only begotten Son of God to call God our Father. In other words, to directly address his divine Father, the eternal Father, as our Father. First thing, pater, noster, quies in chilis, our Father. This is possible only by grace. Only by grace. God himself has to, as it were, reach down from heaven and raise us up by grace. So that we truly become, in God's eyes, children of God. Not by nature, but by grace. So he adopts us. You know all of this. But what's very, very important for us to understand is how we approach God in prayer. You know, as Catholics, we do know we do believe the saints are in heaven now, and they do know who we are and what we are doing. They know us. They know our faith. They see us in the mind of God. We've already talked about that. That's extremely important as a Catholic to understand that because it's the key to understanding so many other aspects of our faith, so many other things of our faith are all ordered toward that reality of eternal life that Christ, Christ came to give. But when we pray, we do pray to saints. We don't offer them the prayer of adoration. We offer that to God only. So when we're accused of praying to saints, never, never let them accuse you of praying a prayer of adoration to any saint, to any creature, because you never do. The church would condemn that. We never offer a prayer of adoration to any saint. We offer to God the prayer of contrition or reparation for sin. We do not pray to saints 
in reparation for our sins. Our sins offend Almighty God. And so when we offer God an act of adoration, that's the first purpose of prayer and the first purpose of sacrifice as a matter of adoration of God. But there are times when we do not do not offer God that reparation, do not offer God that adoration. We do not offer God that reverence that we owe him. And we deny that adoration and we deny that that praise and that um, that reverence to God when we sin. And so the next thing we do after offering God that prayer of adoration, we offer a prayer of reparation too and contrition for sin, the times we did not adore him, the times we did not acknowledge him. That's the next step. We don't offer those prayers to any saint ever. That's to God alone. And the prayer of thanksgiving. Do we ever offer a prayer of thanksgiving to a saint? We can offer a prayer of thanksgiving to a saint, but never in the same sense that we would offer a prayer of thanksgiving to God. We offer the prayers of thanksgiving to God as the source of all good. The saints, no saint, no saint can take that place in our lives legitimately. They're creatures. All the saints are creatures. They are continually making an, a prayer of thanksgiving to God in heaven right now. They themselves are offering prayers of thanksgiving to God. And so we may thank a saint for the one thing the saint can do for us, and that is for joining his or her prayers to our own in supplication. And that's the fourth purpose of prayer and the fourth purpose of sacrifice, all sacrifice, of supplication, asking God's blessings. And notice I didn't say that we would say that the, prayer, the saints pray for us as a substitute for our praying, Rather, the saints join their prayers to ours. That's what we ask them to do. So the only real prayer that we as Catholics offer to saints is asking them a favor. And that favor is asking them to join their prayers with ours. But not substitute their prayers for ours. And there's behind that a very important understanding. You'd think that when our Lord met with his apostles at the Last Supper, he would want to explain things to them. There would still be many mysteries that he could not explain, that the unfolding events would have to make clear to them. And so he wasn't going to explain everything to them. But there were certain things they needed to understand. And what did our Lord say to them? At the Last Supper, he said to them, that you will ask the Father. You will ask the Father yourselves. He said, I say not that I will ask the Father for you. Now, that's what a mediator does. A mediator asks on your behalf. <clears throat> But at the Last Supper, our Lord said this. He said, I say not that I will ask the Father for you. Ask the Father, you ask the Father. You ask the Father yourselves. Ask in my name. Now that's different from 
asking our Lord to ask for us. Our Lord says to the apostles of the Last Supper, you go to the Father, you ask him. You personally address the Father and you ask him. Ask him in my name, but you, you ask him. This is an interesting mediator between God and man who says, you yourselves have access to the Father. And I tell you, you go to the Father and you ask him yourselves. It seems to be like a completion of what our Lord told the apostles when they asked him to teach them to pray. And he taught them to pray in such a way that the very first word out of their mouths, the very first idea in their minds is Father. And now, now at the Last Supper, he's telling them, you go to the Father and you ask him yourselves. But ask in my name. Ask for my sake. And the Father will give that. Why does Jesus say that to the apostles? He tells them exactly why. He says, because the Father loves you. Because the Father loves you. Now, this was very personal, very direct, very individual. The Father loves you. Not as a group of apostles, but loves you. Personally, individually, he knows you and he loves you. And then the question comes up, why? Okay, you tell us to go to the Father. You, the Son of God, tell us to go to the Father and ask ourselves and to ask in your name. And you tell us why we have access, because the Father loves us. And when that question arises, well, why does the Father love us? You tell us why. And the answer is, because you have loved me. Because you have loved me. That's what our Lord tells them. The same time at the Last Supper, he tells the apostles, the Father and I are one. He who sees me sees the Father. So you see, our Lord is telling the apostles, if you love me, not only does the Father love you, but if you love me because you love me and I'm the very image of the Father, necessarily you love the Father too. Philip said, show us the Father. And our Lord Jesus Christ said to him, Philip, have I been with you so long and you do not, do not know me? Do you not see that the Father is in me and I in the Father? He who knows me knows the Father. So in loving Jesus Christ, we do love the Father. And in loving Jesus Christ, we also draw the love of the Father to ourselves. So the Father himself loves us. And so our Lord tells us we have access now. Through him, we have access to go to the Father, to ourselves, and address the Father. There's no substitute for that. We cannot ask the saints to fulfill that purpose for us. That's one thing we have to do ourselves, because Jesus Christ commanded that we do. Go to the Father, address the Father, speak to the Father, <clears throat> ask and supplicate to the Father in my name. So when we ask the saints to pray for us, we're not asking them to pray in our place. We're asking them to pray with us. We're not sending them as surrogates to the Father saying, uh, St. Anthony, go to the God the Father and ask him for something for me. Our Lord wants us to ask the Father directly. And he wants us to be very much aware of that relationship we have by grace to himself to the Son of God, 
but also through the Son of God, the relationship we have with the everlasting, the eternal Father, such that we can go and we can be heard by him. We have a right, as it were, to an audience with God the Father in heaven because of our love for his Son, Jesus Christ. As I said, there's no substitute for that. So yes, we do invoke the saints as Catholics because we understand who they are, where they are, and what they're doing. We understand from what Jesus said at the Last Supper that our love for him, Jesus Christ, gives us access to the Father and makes the Father love us. And if that is true of us, who love our Lord so very little, if that is true of us, who love our Lord so imperfectly, it is so much more true, so to speak, of the saints in heaven who love him with all their hearts and all their minds and all their souls, all their strength. Now that's what they're all about. They're all about loving, loving God and being loved by him. And so we do enlist them because we can. You know what our Lord said once? A rather mysterious saying, he said, make friends for yourselves with the mammon of iniquity so that when you fail in this life, when your life comes to an end, they may receive you into everlasting dwellings. You think about that. What could that possibly mean? Well, only in light of our faith as Catholics, with understanding of who the saints are, do we know who those friends in heaven are? And what it means to make friends with them, with the mammon of iniquity. That means work with the things of this world to produce the good. Do here, now, what they would do in the very things that made them saints. Produce the good that they set themselves to accomplish. You do that now. We do that right now. Things that so many are used by others to do so much damage, even lead souls into, into perdition, we need to use the goods of this world of the love for God to produce the good for God. Produce the good. That's how we'll make friends for ourselves among the saints in heaven. And uh, that when our lives here going to an end, they will receive us. Is this not what we sing so beautifully in, the, in Paradisum at the end of a funeral mass as the casket is being wheeled out of the church? In Paradisum de Ducante Angeli, may the angels lead you into paradise. And we ask that the martyrs receive you, that the saints, the confessors, the we ask that the saints of heaven receive you, the choir, the holy choir of angels receive you into heaven. Talk about make friends for yourself here on earth with a mammon of iniquity, so that when your life fails, they may receive you into everlasting mansions in heaven. Well, we Catholics understand these things, and it is through our faith and alone through our faith, that these things can be understood. 
And so I, I do encourage you to think in terms of going to the Father and speaking to the Father and directing him through, in the name of Jesus Christ. This is what our Lord commanded the apostles to do at the Last Supper. And when you're having trouble praying, when you're praying the rosary, whatever, when you're at Mass, and you're having trouble focusing on your prayer because there's so many distractions in the world around us, even if you pronounce one word in your mind as you're praying, if you have a word that continually recurs to your mind, you're going to actually train yourself that when you're praying, this one word recurs to your mind. It'll help you to pray, even in the midst of fatigue and distractions and so on. And that word is Father, Father, addressing the Father in your prayers. If you have that word recur to you while you're praying, then even if you find yourself struggling to pray, that word that direct address of the Father in heaven will enable you to stay focused on the fact that you're addressing, you're addressing God in heaven. That all that you're saying in prayer is ultimately addressed to the Father in heaven. And that, I believe, will be kind of a, a mainstay in your prayer to enable you to stay focused, even in the midst of a, of a, of a great tempest. <laughs> so I wanted to bring this uh, to your attention because uh, I think it's something that, is, that can be overlooked. Now, that is where our focus should be, really. All of these things are addressed to the Father. Now, I told you yesterday that the Sacred Heart of Jesus is truly a man's heart. Jesus Christ is truly the Son of God, the eternal Word of God. And as the readings uh, told us at the table, this Word of God became man, not in the sense that he changed into a man, but that he took human nature. And so that one divine person of God's Son actually became man in, a, in a, taking a human nature to himself. But it's very important for us to realize he didn't take a human person to himself. If the Son of God had taken a human person to himself, and there were two persons, divine and human, in our Lord, Jesus Christ, then it would be almost as though he did what, what Satan does in taking possession of another person. So you have two persons sort of uniting in one in that act of possession. But God does not need to do that in the sense that because he is God, the creator of all natures, angelic and human, he actually has complete power over human nature such that he can create a human nature for himself. He can create a human soul for himself. And the soul is human, but it is his soul. 
And so he can enter in, as it were, to our, to our nature and become one of us. But he remains the divine person of God's Son, so that God now has a human soul and a human body, and he's fully human in everything but failure, in everything but the failure of humanity in sin that is not to be found in him. So God now, the Son of God, wills with the will of God, but he also wills with the will of man. The Son of God now experiences, he experiences what humanity experiences, even down to having a crown of thorns hammered onto his head and having spikes driven through his hands and feet and left impaled on a cross to die. He can experience that. The Son of God, eternal and almighty, can experience what that is. And he did, which is astounding, obviously, to say the least, absolutely astounding. And he did this out of love. It was all entirely out of love. Out of love for the Father, to make reparation for the insult of sin, and out of love for us, to make reparation for our sins, so that the gates of heaven could again be opened to us. The supreme act of love. We go through our entire lifetimes trying to learn the meaning of this, trying to learn the significance of this fact, so that someday we'll actually see it in heaven, see it for ourselves. When God created that human nature, a soul and body for himself, of which he is the person, the sole person, he created a human heart. And there's an actual physical heart. Every bit as unique and physical as the heart that is now beating in your chest, he has an actual physical heart. But we realize that the person whose heart that is, is the Son of God. That's his heart. As much as your heart is yours, that heart is his. And it sustained his human life here on this earth. But we say in the, in the litany, substantially united to the word of God, heart of Jesus, substantially united to the word of God, we're saying that the very substance of that heart is united to the eternal and infinite Son of God. Therefore, it is the heart of the divine person and worthy of adoration. It belongs to him. It is his. You might even say it is himself. And so in the Sacred Heart, we find not only a symbol, it's not just a symbol of God's love, it is much more than that. It's the actual beating heart of the Son of God, sustaining his life on earth, a life which he undertook in order to die, for that heart would be finally stilled so that we could be redeemed. 
In fact, the sacred scripture tells us, St. John tells us, not that the heart of Jesus was pierced on the cross, it says that his heart was opened on the cross, indicating that it was like a doorway. It was opened, his heart was laid open for us. That is how we enter. It wasn't just pierced, it wasn't just cut. It was opened. That's the word that is used. So if we look to the heart of our Lord, we find there truly a man's heart. As truly as God became man, so that is the heart of a man, even as it is the heart of a God, of the God, one true God, the Son. And uh, we should look to the heart of Jesus as our model, especially for you men. Men should look to the sacred heart of Jesus as the model of what a man's heart should be. And as I told you yesterday, our Lord said, learn from me. And uh, I say, not because I created the heavens and the earth, but learn from me because I am meek and humble of heart. Special reference to his, his own heart. Meekness and humility, the things we need to learn from him. That's where it all starts. Everything starts from there. Meekness and humility, as I mentioned, enable us to know who we really are and see ourselves in our real place, in our real relationship with God and with each other. That's where it starts, meekness and humility. And meekness and humility enable us, then, to receive and cooperate with the grace of God because we see our limitations and we see the disorder that is in our heart and we know we need help. And this enables us now to turn to God and ask for his help and ask for his grace. Otherwise, by pride and arrogance, we shut him out and we say, go away, I don't need you. I'm sufficient. I can be a God unto myself. I'm perfectly happy the way I am. I'll be my own my own quasi-divine person, independent, self-sufficient. This is the tendency we have by sin. This is the path that has been laid out by Lucifer. But that meekness and humility of heart that we learn from Jesus Christ is a beginning. That's why when we start by a consideration of hell, we see why, because of the reality of hell, because the pain of loss might not affect us or concern us that much because our love for God is so small, or maybe not at all. But the pain of senses, that is very real to us. That is much more real to us than heaven. For a sinner, the pain of the senses, we can understand, we can imagine. It's very real, it's very immediate, it is a direct threat long before we can learn to appreciate God and heaven. And so the fear of the Lord really is the beginning of wisdom. And in that fear of the Lord, we find, we find ourselves and our relationship with God and his justice. It's the first thing we need to know. The first thing we know with regard to God, his authority. We learn his love as time goes on. But we need to know his authority. That's the very first gifts of the Holy Ghost, 
fear of the Lord. That's where we all have to start. That's where we learn to respect God. That's where we learn the lesson of meekness and humility of heart. In other words, to look to God in order to help us to overcome our own failures and weaknesses and to raise us up. As we then enter into the sacred heart of Jesus, we learn more and more in the course of time, in the course of grace, we learn his love for us. We learn what love is. We begin to appreciate it more and more and more. The ultimate goal of this, as we go through the various stages of the spiritual life, as we receive the gifts of the Holy Ghost, opening our own hearts to receive more and more of God's grace and cooperate with him, the ultimate goal is wisdom. And wisdom is simply the union of our, our wills, sometimes referred to as our hearts, the union of our wills with the will of God, the perfect union of our will with the will of God. And ultimately, this is realized in heaven. But our purpose here is, not, is to grow in that and to grow toward that. There are saints here on earth who have come to the height of the spiritual life, in their complete union of their wills with the will of God. Now, we saw that example in the Garden of Gethsemane between the human will of Christ and the will of the Father. We see that in the Blessed Mother when she asks at the wedding feast of Cana, asks her son to begin the road to Calvary, that she completely aligned her own will with the will of God. She truly is the handmaid of the Lord. And this is the example that God has given to us. We also have the examples in our own time now, as I mentioned, of, of St. John the Baptist. And we have the example of St. Joseph. We have the example of St. Peter and St. Paul. But we see in St. Peter and St. Paul a great struggle, kind of reminiscent or reflective of the struggle that we go through. As we're going through the same struggle that St. Peter went through, we're going through the same struggle that St. Paul went through, and that is a certain willfulness, a certain rebelliousness. How did God put it to him? It is hard for you to kick against the goad. We read that in the Acts of the Apostles about St. Paul, kicking, kicking, as it were, against the goad as though he were the ox turning the, the mill and was kicking at the one driving him forward. So that kind of represents you and me, too. But we see the triumph of grace in these two great apostles, St. Peter and St. Paul, and that gives us courage, that gives us confidence. But if, you see, if you look at the Gospel and you read of St. Peter and you see the kind of man he was, and you see what had to be done in order to reform, reform him. So we see God has the power and the will to do so for those who will allow him to do so. This gives us courage. If a St. Peter could be reformed and become the vicar of Christ on earth, a great saint and a martyr, there's hope for you and me. If a Paul starting out as Saul, a persecutor of the church of God, right? 
could be reformed as he was reformed. And may the great apostle of God here among the Gentiles, among the pagans. So we know that God's grace is very efficacious and can work wonders. This gives us confidence as we may go through the day and be constantly confronted with our own weakness and our own failure. We look beyond those things and as much as we may be discouraged by our own weakness and failure, we are much, much more encouraged by the power of God and his will to save us and his will to do great things through us. Our Lord Jesus Christ dying on the cross for us, of course, accomplished our redemption. But everything that our Lord did during his life, every time he was hungry, every time he was cold, every time he was thirsty, all of these things were an infinite act of adoration of the Father in heaven. His entire life from beginning to end. Every breath he took, every heartbeat was an act of adoration of the Father. And we say that is also true of our Blessed Lady, because her will was always directed to honor and adore Almighty God and to honor his holy will. So we might say every breath she took and every beat of her heart was an act of adoration of God in heaven. Would that it were true of you and me, but we still kick against the goad, and we need to overcome that. Little by little, grace by grace, we will. Just to ask you to uh, think about these personages that God has given to us. Of course, we have the Feast of St. Peter and Paul coming up, and the octave that follows. We had the Feast of St. John the Baptist, and we are within the octave that follows that feast day. We just finished the octave of the Sacred Heart yesterday. All of these come together here during the time of the retreat. They are all splendid examples for each and every single one of us. To recall the place we have, it's natural for us in our pride to want to do great things. We want to do something spectacular. We want to do something remarkable. We want to do something really memorable. But is that because of our own pride or is it because of our love for God? There are those who insist that Christianity is about speaking in tongues and about uh, healing and about raising from the dead and so on. But St. Paul makes it very clear. Christianity is about faith and about hope and about the love of God and the love for God. This, he said, is what Christianity really is. This is what Christ really came to do. Not to give us powers to show off or make something important of ourselves as though we were not like the rest of men. Well, we need to learn to bow our heads before the almighty power of God and say, as Our Lady said, that we are here to serve and serve even in the slightest way, to do what little service we can. We've already seen that uh, even a small thing 
can have a great result. Lorenz saw that just moving his, the figures, the numbers, a little bit, and taking even one small little factor, as insignificant as it seemed, out of play, things would not happen the way they did. Everything then contributes to the divine plan, and you and I are part of it. We need to always keep that in mind and never dismiss anything as being insignificant. If it's something we do for God, it cannot be insignificant. So ask our Lord for that grace to, to understand that. So when I say that you need to practice, we all need to practice prudence and justice and fortitude and temperance, we need to understand the place of those virtues in our lives, and I realize that it doesn't give us a lot of time to talk about them. But I do want to uh, at least say this much about them. Okay? Just as you have seven gifts of the Holy Ghost, and you have seven capital sins, you also have seven great virtues. And the greatest of these are the supernatural virtues. There are three of them. Faith, hope, and charity. But after that, faith, hope, and charity, you have subject to them four more virtues. And these four virtues actually contain all of the others. All of the other virtues. Obedience and patience and purity. They're all contained in these four cardinal virtues. And those four cardinal virtues, the Church teaches us, are prudence and justice and fortitude and temperance. In order to practice the virtue of purity, one has to have the virtue of temperance In order to practice the virtue of patience, one has to have the cardinal virtue of fortitude. So this is where we should focus our attention in the practice of these virtues. And I say practice because, as I mentioned, virtues are made for action. They are made to accomplish to produce something. Where? In the world? Yes, secondarily, around us, but primarily, the virtues are meant to accomplish something in the human soul. That is where they produce the fruits that God wants, within the human soul. And producing these virtues, these virtues in the human soul are active, and so they, they do often produce good effects in the world around us. Yes, they do, as we apply them. But the first consequence, the first benefit, the first fruit, the first produce of these virtues is going to be in the human soul itself, the individual soul, yours and mine. And notice the order of these things. The, the virtues are given to us in a certain order. After faith and hope and charity, 
we have four virtues in a certain order. And it makes sense, by the way, of course, even there, that faith and hope and charity should come first because they are the, what they call the theological virtues. They're purely supernatural. They have to be given to us as gifts from God. We can pray for them, but we can't produce them in our souls. We can't make them happen in our souls. God has to give it. He has to elevate our intellects and our wills by that power to believe, to hope, and to love him in a manner that is above anything merely natural. But charity then, the third of these gifts, the third of these graces, the third of these virtues, as St. Paul tells us, is the one that will remain forever in heaven. It's the one that will be ultimately perfected in heaven, even as faith and hope fall away, as though they're no longer needed, which they aren't. Charity is the one that is meant to last and reign in the soul forever. Charity, again, as love, is it productive of some actual fruits or benefits? When you love someone, you want to do. You want to do for them. You delight in doing for them. You delight of giving of yourself for them, for their happiness, for their welfare, for their benefit. Giving of yourself makes you happy and joyful when you're giving this to someone you love. It's as though it enriches you to give of your riches to them as an investment in what you truly love. That's what charity does. The philosophers put it this way, bonum est diffusivum sui. Goodness tends to communicate itself, wants to give of itself. It finds its joy in giving of itself to what it loves. That's true of God. That's why God created. It's true of us too. That is where we find our joy. We have to be willing to give ourselves to what we love. Ultimately, that's what heaven will be. So it's no surprise that immediately after listing faith and hope and charity, following charity, now you have the virtues. Now you have those active powers. Now you have the things that elevate our intellect and our will now to do for supernatural reasons what others do simply for natural worldly purposes, which will never save their souls. We find in these four virtues of prudence, justice, fortitude, temperance, the cardinal virtues, which are we call moral virtues, also known as the moral virtues. But we find that a worldling, somebody in the world, can practice prudence. But they practice prudence for a very different motive. They practice prudence for the sake of living well in this world. That was, for example, the thought of Socrates. Socrates was concerned about how do we live well in this world? That was what his philosophy was about. 
natural virtue. But when there is faith and hope and charity, that elevates your prudence now to another reason, to a supernatural motive, and that motive is the love for God. So you've taken what is a natural virtue of prudence and you've elevated it to a supernatural level, and you make it productive of supernatural good, even grace and salvation. And the same with justice. Someone can practice justice, an atheist can practice justice. An atheist can be offended at injustice. An atheist can make just decisions, but purely for natural reasons, just for the reasons of this world. Just for the reason of his own self-satisfaction, perhaps, that he thinks, I'm a just man. But doing it for the love of God? No. When you have the grace of faith, hope, and charity, now your motivation is different, and that makes all the difference. When you're doing it for the love of God now, then your acts of justice are supernaturally motivated, and so they're supernaturally powerful, and they can produce supernatural good. They are offered in praise and glory for the glory of God. And now they can be the means of saving your soul. The same with fortitude, same with temperance. Not every atheist is a drunkard. An atheist can be temperate, but he's temperate for his own personal reasons. But someone with faith and open charity is temperate for God's reasons and to please God. The same with fortitude. One can be brave for any number of reasons. All reasons of the world. But when we're brave and courageous for God's sake, then that elevates these from merely acquired virtues, virtues that we just work on ourselves, to add to our collection of virtues that we can chalk up in our favor, but rather it raises them from the level of acquired, virtu of, of, uh, acquired virtues that we've worked at to the virtues that are, that are given to us by God that are elevated to a higher level by God. We call that infused, that God infuses these virtues into the soul. Actually, there's really not an opposition between acquiring the virtues by practicing them and having the virtues infused in our souls by the power of God in answer to prayer. What God wants us to do, really, in his service, is both. He wants us to pray to him for the virtues of prudence and justice and fortitude and temperance. He wants us to ask him for those. But he also wants us to exercise them by our own powers here on earth. He wants us to exercise these and build them up. He wants our efforts to be united with his grace <coughs> so that the prudence and justice and fortitude and temperance, we can honestly say... <coughs> are the work of God's grace and the work of our cooperation with that grace. Both. So that in the end, in heaven, you'll be able to say, God saved my soul. Even as you're able to say, I saved my soul.
You could not have saved your soul without God's grace. Impossible. But neither could God have saved your soul without your cooperation. Both were necessary. And both should be given credit. God wants you to have that knowledge and that satisfaction and that joy of knowing, yes, you did. You saved your soul. You overcame that kicking against the goad. You overcame that in order to have his grace triumph in you. Now, what is prudence? Prudence is actually the chief of these virtues, and it actually directs the others. I mentioned to you sometime before that the philosophers refer to the virtue of prudence as the auriga virtutum. That means in Latin, in English, it means the chariot driver of the virtues. When there's a chariot with the horses attached, they are meant to run, but they need a driver to direct them. Prudence is that driver. Prudence is the director. Justice and fortitude and temperance do not moderate themselves. Justice and fortitude and temperance are subject to excess or defect. We can have a defect of justice, but we can have an excess of justice too. How so? Well, you can have a justice that excludes mercy and just and merely enforce justice regardless, heedless of all else, that this is what is due and this is what you pay. We have the example from the gospel of the servant who owed the 10,000 talents and was forgiven the debt, who went out and demanded justice now. He who had received mercy, such mercy, went and demanded justice from his fellow servant. Was it unjust for him to demand what was owed to him? No, that's the very meaning of justice, to render to another what you owe him. But you see, there was an excess of that insistence on that justice being served without any consideration of any other factors involved. We have a right to things, but we don't have an obligation to demand our rights. And our Lord wants us to follow the example of mercy that he said. Justice needs to be regulated. The same with fortitude. One can be brave to the point of foolhardiness and do crazy things, reckless things, in the name of bravery. One can be very cowardly. Sometimes somebody can be recklessly, wildly brave in some ways and cowardly in other ways. A football player on the field can be like a madman. He can play like a madman out there, smashing and banging and uh, laying waste the opposite, uh, the, the opposing team. It can be highly praised and rewarded with trophies and, and uh, paid great sums of money for, <laughs> for his valor on the field. But off the field, he may be an absolute coward when it comes to standing up for what is right, for defending what he believes in, if he believes in anything. He may be as weak as a kitten. He may defend 
his own team that he roots for, on the one hand, even unto death. And yet, when it comes to a matter of going to work day by day by day, at a job that is difficult for him, he may be too, too cowardly to do that, even if it's for the sake of supporting his wife and his family, his wife and his children. He may not have the courage he needs for that, which is more important, of course. And so fortitude itself needs to be regulated. It can be by defect or it can be by excess. The same with temperance. One can be so temperate that he fasts, and he fasts so much that he damages his health. And so he has an excess of that. He does it so much that it's actually harmful. Or he can have a defect of temperance so that he gorges himself. These other virtues of justice and fortitude and temperance need to be regulated according to right reason. And that regulator is another virtue called prudence. Prudence is the virtue that enables us to do the right and the good in such a way that it produces the ultimate end, the purpose, the good purpose. And prevents us from using bad means in order to uh, actually what we propose as a good end, but we undermine that by the way we do things. As you think back in life, no doubt, you and I, each one of us, can think of a time when we wished we had done something differently. We wished we'd said something different or said it in a different way. We wish we'd gone about things differently because we find that despite whatever good intentions we had or thought we had, that things went awry, things went badly, things went foul. They achieved the exact opposite purpose. They achieved the exact opposite end of what we intended. And it was because the means we chose were the wrong means. The means we chose to accomplish whatever good purpose were ill-chosen and ill-applied. What we said and how we said it, what we did and how we did it, made things worse, not better. And what was lacking there? The virtue of prudence. So one cannot overemphasize the importance of prudence in how we go about things. Keeping in mind the good purpose but the path we have to take to get there is prudence. You want to build a table or a chair or something as mundane as that, you have a certain way of proceeding. You know the steps you have to take in order to produce the thing that you have in mind and do it well. There are ways to do it correctly, and there are ways to do it wrongly. There are ways to do it well and ways to do it badly. Prudence has to govern our actions, especially the virtues of justice and fortitude and temperance. When I talk about justice now, justice, as I say, is, is rendering to each according to what he deserves. It's the very baseline 
You cannot even think of what mercy is without having an idea of what justice is first. Justice lays the foundation. How do you determine that you will exercise mercy and not require of another what that person owes in justice unless you start with what the person owes in justice? You have to start with that and understand what that is before you can even begin to think about exercising mercy. <coughs> now, when it comes to God, you and I cannot render to God the things that he deserves because he deserves more than we can give. You say, well, what if I laid down my life for God? Wouldn't that be giving God what he deserves? The answer is no. Why? Because he didn't just give you your life. He, he created you out of nothing. He created your soul out of nothing. And that is an infinitely powerful act. You cannot re repay him for that infinitely powerful act. He gave you existence. And all the other things, your nature, your powers, just bringing you into existence was an infinitely powerful act. He sustains you in existence. You can't repay him that. Huh? So you are incapable of rendering justice to God in the strict sense of the word, that you can repay him for what he's done for you. All you can do is give him what you can and give him what you are in love, here on earth in faith and hope and charity, in heaven, in that supreme act of love that is eternal life. That's as much as you can give. But to each other now, we can be just. We can give to each other what the other deserves. That's a baseline, as I say. That is the second of these virtues, to be willing to give to others what they deserve. In good, especially, in what they deserve, in punishment, there we have the question of mercy here. Fortitude. Fortitude is the virtue that enables us to overcome obstacles. You know, the virtue of fortitude and the virtue of temperance actually go together. They're listed in the order fortitude comes first, then temperance, and yet in some ways temperance is more powerful a virtue than fortitude in a certain way. Because fortitude enables you to overcome external obstacles. Fortitude enables you to overcome external challenges. to doing what is right. But temperance is the virtue that enables you to overcome the internal obstacles, what's inside you. It is the key to gaining self-control. With original sin, our passions have run amok. They dominate and they devastate. <coughs> Temperance enables us to gain control of those passions. The power of the will, motivated by grace, enables us to gain control over those passions, especially the appetites of desire for worldly pleasures and satisfaction, comforts. That's the concupiscible appetite. Temperance enables us also to gain control over the irascible appetite, the appetite to fight, to fight for what we want and to fight against what we don't want. 
but is contrary to our wills. These two things can be motivated by complete selfishness. They are of themselves irrational. They're just passions, they're appetites. They're a gimme, gimme, gimme. That's what they're all about, right? But by the power of the will, we can regulate these things in virtue, the virtue of temperance. How many people are able to fight external enemies, but they have no self-control or very little self-control? We see that example today. People admire them for what they do on the baseball field, on the battlefield, whatever it may be. And yet they don't have self-control. They don't have the virtue of temperance. How we should admire those who have that self-control manifested in patience, manifested in patience, especially in patience. Patience takes such a great strength, interior strength. It is so impressive. It even impressed the soldiers under the cross. Our Lord's patience impressed them. Truly, this man is the son of God. One of the soldiers, probably the soldier who ran the spear to open his side. The soldier we now know. As Longinus remarked, truly, this is the son of God. How impressed we are with that self-control of patience. My dear faithful, I know, uh, gentlemen, I know I've talked uh, quite a time here, and I'm sorry about that, trying to get everything in here. But uh, I do ask you to please ponder these questions regarding these, the virtues of prudence and justice and fortitude and temperance. Pray for those virtues. Ask our Lord to enable you to see in the past the need for these things where the failures were, what still needs to be done so you can apply yourself to gaining these virtues because they will produce the fruits in your life that you need to show to our Lord. Lord, you've given me life. You've given me these years. You've given me these graces. What do I have to show for these? What do I have to show? The time of reckoning will come. The time to show the books, the time to show the produce, the time to produce the talents and the increase for what God has given you, the time of reckoning will come. And when that time comes, God forbid any one of us here should hear these words, depart from me, you accursed ones, into the everlasting fires of hell. Because when I needed you, you were not. You did not. But God grant that each and every one of us and our loved ones, too, hear the words, Come, ye blessed of my Father, and take possession of the kingdom, which God has prepared for you, which my Father has prepared for you and for those who love him. Those who produced fruits worthy of his graces and of his love for you. May God bless you.